was able to give us a real feel for that parable. Thank you, that was good. I liked it. A number of sources state that Martin Luther preached at least 13 different sermons on this parable. Different ones. Not that he preached 13 over the course of his life, but 13 different sermons on this parable. I think he could have preached 1,300 and still had a lot to say to the Christian church in our time. For it is far too easy to be this Pharisee. Klein Snodgrass writes, All too frequently we secretly judge people as less than ourselves. In doing so, we are guilty of the sin of comparison, and we reveal how far we are from the mind of God. That's a very powerful quote from a very well-respected theologian. How many times do you often think of comparison as a sin, right? But it's far from the mind of God, and it is. Far from the mind of God, or using the metaphor we used last week, blindness. Blindness. And the irony of this blindness, it is... It is most severe in us exactly when we think we see the most. That's the irony of this blindness. Exactly when we think we see the most is when we are the most blind. Like this religious leader. We become so certain of what we know, we stop looking. We stop seeing, and so we become blind. This is why Jesus said when he dealt with the religious leaders... He said, because you say we see, your sin remains. You remain blind. These are powerful moments in the Gospels. When Jesus is dealing with the sin of humanity, he is always dealing with religious leaders. Isn't that interesting? Blindness. Someone, another one of my favorite theologians says, the second you get into ministry, your chances of going to heaven drop by 50%. <laughs> And it terrifies me because that's what happens. We think we know. We think we see. So this is a truth we should all carry with us. For it is easy to slide into this blindness that Jesus warns about. We stop allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us into deeper understanding. That's what happens. Our Greek mindsets are so determined that everything is 2 plus 2. And once we know 2 plus 2... We know everything. Well, with 2 plus 2, that's true. 2 plus 2 equals 4. That'll never, ever, ever change. I think. I don't think... Does a string theory affect 2 plus 2, Dale? No. 2 plus 2 equals 4. But we're talking about God, the eternal. We need the Holy Spirit to constantly leap us, lead us into deeper and deeper faith. And I think this is what happens. We substitute relationship with God which requires true seeing of ourselves and God, right? To have a relationship, you have to have true seeing of ourselves and God. So we substitute that with propositional knowledge about God. Because, see, propositional knowledge about God is easier. We can quantify that. And the second we can quantify it, we can now compare to others, do they know the same, right? This is where denominations come from. Thousands of denominations in our religion, and all the religions have it, is... People think they know, and those people don't know. Okay, so propositional knowledge, but propositional knowledge isn't relationship. Relationship is something different. It's seeing and seeing ourselves. So I think this is why Jesus tells parables like this one. This parable, as given, and if we allow it to say what it says, without interfering with our, with our knowledge, when we allow it to say what it says, it's too disorienting. This parable is disorienting. 
It crushes our little boxes where we like to keep God. You know, I always find myself arguing against the truth of this parable. Arguing against the truth Jesus revealed. I'm arguing against God. You, you understand that? So think about how blinded I am. I'm arguing against God. That is about as closed-minded blindness as you can get. What I do see is I take the parable as it is and I add to it. I add all the qualifiers, all the scriptures that will change the meaning of this parable because I know, I know all there is to know about God. It's not easy to swallow. It's eternal mystery stuff that simply doesn't fit in with what I know, but that's exactly why I need this parable. I, I personally, I don't know about you, but I need this parable. That I had so much fun teaching it last week and studying again this week as I, I need this parable. Fun's not the right word. It was very difficult because it's a very convicting parable. It convicts me. It reveals my own tendency to, towards self-righteousness, towards comparing myself to others. I do that all the time, especially when it comes to religious stuff and theological stuff. It's so easy that I dive into my blindness. And it exposes something worse. It exposes in me my unwillingness to really believe in the God Jesus revealed. And that's really where the rubber hits the road in this parable because Scripture's clear, by no other name under heaven thou shalt be saved. We're saved by Christ, through Christ, in Christ, because of Christ. So when I'm arguing positions that are not Christ, oh, they might be very Christian, but they're not anything like Jesus Christ, I've put my blinders on, right? And I've become this Pharisee. So last week we looked at the Pharisee, we talked all about it, And we realized that his audience's jaws would have dropped all the way to the ground when they found out this guy, who was incredibly good, wasn't justified in God's eyes. And I think some of us dropped our jaws too once we realized this Pharisee was exactly the man every Christian church wants in leadership. And yet Jesus said he goes home unjustified. Well, this week we're going to look at the tax collector, and if our jaws dropped last week, get ready. Tax collectors at this time were despicable people from every vantage point. This is not an IRS guy. Okay, though if you get audited, you think that way about them. But trust me, they're just guys doing their job. That is not what tax collecting was back then. Okay, so here's how, in in the Mishnah, so that's, that's a very important book in Judaism, they were considered on the level of murderers and robbers, and get this, people whom you were allowed to lie to. That is awesome. That's how unclean they were. You were allowed to lie to them. No problem. They were generally considered to be, and in practice were, very dishonest because here's how it worked. Here's how you became a tax collector. Rome owned the world, right? So they couldn't do everything. So they would put out to bid areas that needed tax collecting. So, and there were all sorts of taxes that needed to be collected. They collected land, toll, transportation, sales, inheritance, etc., 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 etc. See, taxes are not a modern blight. They have been around forever. Rome gave the high bidder a contract to collect the taxes. And any amount above that amount was how that tax collector made his money. So you're starting to get the picture? Okay, so I say to Rome, okay, this is the area, yeah, I'll do tax collecting, and I'll give you $500 for this area every month, and everyone else bids at $400 or $450 or $300 or $200, and so I get, the, I, get, I get it, 
So now all I have to do is get enough taxes to pay them 500 and I keep the contract. How do I live? I collect 600 or 700 or 800 and I use any methods I want to collect that money. So this is why they were so despised. Picture, they're working for the occupying forces, okay? And two, they stole for a living, sometimes brutally. Threats, violence, all sorts of things. That's what a tax collector is. So it is this guy, please get this guy in your mind, or better yet, get in your mind who you have always judged silently in your head as the definition of it, the worst sinner you know. Just get that person in your mind. Tito? I know who Tito's thinking of. <laughs> and it's not me, by the way, Ruben. All right? He's not going to tackle me. Tito, you are not tackling me. Okay? That is not happening. So, he go, this guy goes up to the temple to pray. He stands some distance away where the unclean were made to stand, probably by the eastern gate, during the prayers. He stood praying, unable to look up, and was even beating his breast. Now, that's, that's this little line that we read here and we're like, yeah, who cares, right? No. That is a ginormous detail that Jesus gives his audience. Bailey helps us understand our Middle Eastern scholar. In the Middle East, generally speaking, women beat their chest, men do not. In the Bible, the only other case of people beating their chest is at the cross, when the crowds, deeply disturbed at what had taken place, beat their chest at the end of the day, just after Jesus died. If it requires a scene as distressing as the crucifixion of Jesus to cause men, as well as women, to beat their chest, then clearly the tax collector of this parable is deeply distraught. Okay? This is a powerful scene. This guy is standing there beating his chest, not even looking up to heaven, crying out for mercy. Now we're going to get insight into the cause of this distress and into the very heart of the parable, and I suggest the very heart of Scripture, when we consider his prayer. Okay, He implores God to have mercy on him. This is his prayer. God have mercy on me. Now, here's what's interesting the Greek word in this sentence is not the Greek word typically used for mercy. We see that later on in the chapter. This is, this is um, verse 39 in the same chapter. Someone else shouted, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's the typical word. But in this case, in the parable we're studying, Jesus uses a different word that's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used in Hebrews. It's that word there. I'm not going to even try to pronounce it, just so you can jump in if you know how to pronounce it. And it's here in Hebrew. So, here's where it's used. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Atonement for the sins of his people. Many scholars will make the argument that in this verse, it should be translated as mercy, God have mercy on me, a sinner, because it does capture the ultimate end of what this man wants. He does want mercy. But Bailey helps us understand the significance of this other word that was actually there. Okay? Here's what Bailey, it's a long one, so I'll read it. I don't even know if you can see it. I couldn't fit it. The classical Armenian translation made in the Middle East in the 4th century reads, the classical Armenian translation of Scripture, Oh God, make an atonement for me. There is no apparent reason to deny the word its full weight and translate the tax collector's request accordingly. 
See, here's what's going on. Picture this. On the great high altar, a lamb without blemish has been sacrificed for the sins of Israel. He's there at atonement service in the morning or at night. Okay, he's there. This guy is there. So it's been sacrifices. He watches the sacrifice of the lamb. He listens to the blowing of the trumpets and the great clash of the cymbals. He hears the reading of the psalm and watches the blood splashed on the side of the altar. Then he sees the priest disappear inside the temple to offer incense before God in the Holy of Holies. He sees the priest shortly afterward reappear, announcing that the sacrifice has been accepted and Israel's sins washed away by the atoning sacrifice of the Lamb. The trumpets blow again and the incense wafts to heaven and the great choir sings because everyone's excited their sins have been washed away. But the tax collector, distraught and beating his chest, stands afar off and cries out, O Lord, make an atonement for me. So desperate, so convinced of his utter lostness, he has no confidence in the sacrifice of the lambs or in any sense of his own goodness. So with faith in a God who forgives, a God of grace, he throws himself on his mercy and Christ tells us he goes home justified. What a picture. God, make atonement for me, please. There is nothing I can do. Please do this for me. There was no transaction with God. Do you notice this? This is important for us. So many of us were brought up with three little steps to salvation. We even went as far as to call it a sinner's prayer that you had to repeat after me. There is no transaction here with God. There is no payment, no passing of any knowledge exams, which I love. That's my favorite thing, to pass knowledge exams, to earn my way with God. There was no meeting any standards. There was no successful evaluation of character. There was no balancing of accounts. There was simply an authentic recognition of his own broken character and an even more authentic understanding of God's merciful character. This is the dual posture that is the bedrock of Christian living. The bedrock of Christian living. And I don't think we can move beyond this. And sadly, I think we have, and that has created our blindness. Listen, an authentic recognition of his own broken character and an even more authentic understanding of God's merciful character. There is the bedrock of Christian living. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, in Christ, I could know I was accepted by grace, not only despite my flaws, but because I was willing to admit them. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I love that. In other words, it is what keeps us from going blind. For our eyes remain open, wide open, to our reality and God's reality. And nothing is more important than that. Nothing. Because when our eyes are open to our own reality, we know our tendency is toward in very Christian language, sin. We know that. And that keeps us humble in seeking mercy. 
but we also understand and are confident of God's love and grace for us, and so that keeps us confident we are accepted by Him because we need that acceptance. And this is a necessary ongoing attitude we have to have. Ongoing. Don't compartmentalize Christianity. This is not a gateway we go through and then our relationship changes. This is the Christian life. Always eyes open to our reality and God's reality. If we're going to experience radical transformation in our lives, and this is what God wants. God wants us to live like Christ. He wants us to. He wants us to put aside those sins that would encumber us. But if we're going to be radically transformed, we must always be asking to see. Because we know in so many areas we still remain blind. And I think the biggest obstacle to genuine growth in Christian lives is because we approach this from a Greek mindset of once we know it, we know it. See, almost every Christian I know never disagrees with me on the grace God offers sinners. Never. The irony is, some of the most ardent supporters of grace for sinners are the most vocal opponents of grace for believers. And that's because we get so blinded by our own certainty that because we know, we now merit transformation. And I want to explain something. Merit is anti-gospel. Merit is what turned this table into what it is in so many minds. A place that you are worthy of. Instead of this table is the place you are only worthy because Jesus died. And that's why we need this table. Merit is a very dangerous word. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is we are always in need of grace and it is recognizing our need that we reach out for help and receive it. The gospel journey toward Christ-likeness, and that's the journey we should be on, is a constant journey of needing and asking for grace. Like this tax collector. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It is only when we actually accept the real truth that we are blind and remain in a posture of humility asking God to help us see that we actually see. Any other posture is blindness. Any other posture is blindness. See, this man, in undemanding trust, places his life in the hands of a God he believes will forgive him. Like, honest, just take one minute. Why I love this scene, just be honest with yourselves. When you do come face-to-face with God, are you literally going to bring up theology in what you know? Like, literally, are you going to? Just think about that for a second. And maybe that doesn't affect you, and maybe you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, David. That affects me. Because I've got in my head already all the things. Oh, no, I... Really? No, I'm going to fall on my face. Please have mercy on me. I'm not going to quote the day I got saved. I'm not going to quote anything theological. I'm going to fall on my face. God have mercy on me. That's why I love that great song by... uh, Is it Mercy Me? Will I I dance for you, Jesus? That one that... Or will I just not... But anyway, that's because... What am I going to do? No, I'm just going to fall on my face. John, St. John fell on his face when he met Jesus. 
So think about this. So this is what this 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 is a forgiveness based solely on God's character and not on anything we could ever do to earn or secure it. So do we understand God this way? Here's the question. Do we really understand God this way? And before we answer that, even if we think we understand that intellectually, ready, here goes. Here goes the parable. Now, you're all going to hate this. I, I know you're going to hate this. And you're going to tell me I'm wrong. Because I've already told myself I'm wrong and that I should just edit this out. <laughs> But here's the thing, I'm not here to be right. That's important to remember. At Cain, I'm not here to be right. What I'm here to do is explore Scripture together so we always keep our eyes open and asking God. And in fact, sometimes when I'm most wrong, and I'm never wrong on purpose, I'm just wrong because I'm wrong, because I'm blind, is probably the most benefit I can do because then you go home and you're like, that can't be true, and then you search Scripture on your own. And if you're searching Scripture authentically, you're either affirmed that I am wrong, or you're like, oh, Wait, maybe I've got to study this more. And you keep seeking the Holy Spirit to help us. So, here we go. Here is what this parable tells us. When allowed to tell us what it tells us. Without adding your qualifiers. Jesus didn't add any qualifiers. Okay? And I know what the qualifiers are. Believe me, I know about God. I've got all the scriptures lined up for this is not true. But it is true because this is what this scripture tells us. This parable, when read by itself, a week goes by. And the Pharisee and the tax collector go back to the temple to pray. The Pharisee has had another week of exemplary living, perfect religious duties, faithful to his wife, fair in business practices, leader of both the religious and secular communities he lives in, above reproach. Then he prays, giving God the glory for his goodness, and home he goes again, still unjustified. The tax collector had another week of robbing people, getting rich on other people's hard work, being unclean. Then he stands again, beating his chest, looking at the ground and crying out, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And he goes home justified. And again the next week. And again the next week. This isn't the first time that tax collector showed up at temple. Did the hair on the back of your neck going up, 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 up? Are you starting to form arguments? I know. I have a ton against it. And all my arguments are scriptural based. See, my human nature insists on living, on leaving a grace-based relationship with God and entering a merit-based relationship with God, especially when I'm living a good Christian life. And I... And if you have trouble with this sin of comparison that I have, here's what I want you to do. Go through your life and think about the times when you were caught in your own sin. How much comparison were you doing then? Probably very little. It tends to come out when we're not. And have you ever noticed our comparison and our judging of sinners always comes out on sins that we have no problem struggling with? Ever notice that? I was just confessing to close friends earlier about a sin that I constantly judge in others because it is nowhere part of my life, never has been prayerfully. Well, actually, that's not true. It was at one time in my life, but I got over it, and that's how blind I am. God helped me over that exact same sin, and I'm even more judgmental of it now. See, this is why I love this parable. I need this parable. I need it. 
This is pride. We think we can meet the standards on our own, and we expect others to as well, especially people like this tax collector. I mean, that's what humanity is all about, so I understand how we slide here. Meeting the standards, passing the test, from the time we're conceived, we're evaluated and judged. And we evaluate and judge others. Our lives are defined not by relationships of love, but by constant pass-fail exams. And if you don't think that's true, <laughs> that's true. That's how we're judged. If Dave stops showing up at class to teach, he's going to get fired. If Siraj falls asleep during surgeries, he's going to get fired. And on and on and on it goes. And then, let's not even talk about marriage. As much as we're supposed to love each other unconditionally, it often just devolves into massive pass-fail exams. You did this, you did that. How's it going waking up in the middle of the night back there? You guys balance that out yet? I just sleep right through. a boy. <laughs> so you see what I mean? We live this life, so I get it. But here's the problem. We think it's the same with God, but He's not human like us. And we've read through this Hebrew scripture with a Greek mindset and have made it like that with God, but it's not. We need to break through to faith in the God Jesus revealed. We need to see God. This tax collector did. He knew nothing at all could justify him, so he asked God to do it. The Pharisee, though, was like us. And again, when I say like us, I'm not including anyone. Me. I just like to use us. It's more of an inclusive way of preaching than you or me. But it's me. The Pharisee was like me. He was blind. He was convinced he had passed all the exams. Knew all there was to know. Confident God would be pleased. Certain that his human righteousness would win him justification. But like we learned last week, in, that in God's kingdom, righteousness is about right relationship. That's what the Bible says and teaches. Therefore, sin is about broken relationship. This tax collector entered into right relationship with God. True awareness of God's perfection, true awareness of his own imperfection, total trust in God's righteousness, God's unconditional love of him, and total abandonment of any trust in his own. In other words, that Jesus uses a lot, he knew he was lost and wanted to be found. He knew he was least and wanted to be made great. He knew he was dead and wanted to be raised again. The Pharisee has no concept of this. No awareness of God as loving, as full of grace, as forgiving. No true sense of his own inability to impress God. No understanding that he can never do enough to merit justification. And so the relationship remains broken. And this is why this is important that we get past this thing. Well, I did that once, David. I knew God was that unforgiving, but now it's different. No, it's not. We need to stay in that place because it keeps us humble and it keeps us seeking and it keeps us asking for his help and that's when the Holy Spirit can work on us. And that is why I said I think this is why so many Christians, myself most of all, have so much trouble realizing authentic transformation in our lives. Because if we insist on pursuing a form of human righteousness, which has nothing to do with right relationship, nothing to do with love, we will always be this Pharisee. Real righteousness is about right relationship, and it starts with right relationship with God. And that starts with true humility before Him, recognizing that no matter how morally good we are or how morally bad we are, we are always the sinner in need of mercy 
and only a God who dies, Jesus Christ, can give us that. And I know we're a few minutes late. Sorry, I just I didn't want to break this into three weeks. I just wanted to finish. So we're almost done. So true seeing is letting yourself be loved by God just the way you are, always humbly trusting Him and no one else, especially ourselves for justification. And then, in that freedom, this is the important part, true humility loves Him back. Then in that healed relationship with God, we're able to move into a life of loving others. See, here's the thing, and and I, I think I say this a lot, but sometimes it just maybe gets missed. Or, maybe we put on blinders because we don't want to hear. And that can be true too. God doesn't want us living lives that are not like Jesus Christ. He doesn't want that. He wants us to follow Him. He gave us the way of life and He wants us to walk that way. That's not what grace means. Grace doesn't mean do whatever you want. Who cares? That's not what this means. Hear this out. Hear this whole teaching out. I'm almost done. God wants that. But that only genuinely comes from loving Him and trusting Him. You can be obedient to God's laws without having any relationship with Him. And I can point out a bunch of Christian theology and other religions' theologies that will point to that. But if you have a true relationship with God and you love Him and you know He loves you and you are confidently humble in that love, you will start obeying God. That's how it works. Because you trust Him. Remember the example I used last week or two weeks ago, my doctor? I've been obedient to my doctor for 16 years. That's because I trust my doctor. Not because I'm trying to make him happy or because I'm afraid of him. Because I trust what he told me is life. Trust brings, in Christian language, an obedient lifestyle. But here's the thing. That is why Jesus told this parable. Because those who seek mercy receive mercy. Because they recognize, and this is the key on Christian lifestyle, they recognize that no matter how good they live, they are still sinners and still in need of grace. And it is that humility and that posture that keeps us moving forward in Christian lifestyle. So, what Jesus is getting at, and what I try to talk about, and I hope I'm clear, if we push a moral lifestyle for the sake of a moral lifestyle, and that's the whole point, then all we are ever going to do or become is this Pharisee. We deny the very relationship we're supposed to be entering, and by the way, we are supposed to be inviting others to enter the same relationship that we're denying for the sake of morality. And for me, that's a poor substitution. Morality follows our relationship with God. If morality replaces our relationship with God, it's a very poor substitution. In the end, don't we want to be justified? And only grace does that. You see, and here's the part I want you to hear. I am confident 
that the longer the tax collector remains in right relationship with God, he will slowly fix his other relationships. And maybe someday he won't even be a tax collector anymore. And this is another part of the journey towards Christ-likeness, guys, in girls, in people, in babies, in older people, is this. Listen, we're all on the journey on our own speeds with God. And there are some sins that people just really struggle with. We need to be patient and understanding of that. That is a far cry from our friends who look us in the eye and say, oh, I can do whatever I want, God loves me. Come on, that's not what grace is. And I don't teach that here, and Cain is not about that. I've been clear on that. But at the same time, there's a lot of people that just struggle with sin. Why? They don't trust God yet. We all have made areas in our life we don't trust God. Let's be in community and help each other trust God to move forward. Instead of forcing them into a standard that's not going to get them justified anyway. Because it's never a good enough standard. So, with this tax collector, even when he cleans up his whole life, I can guarantee he will still go to the temple every day and pray, Lord, have mercy on me. Amen. That's the fairest... That's the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. I know we've gone long today, so let's all do this. I did have a song, but instead of song, let's, let's stand and break down. Oh God, who is preparing for those who love you such good things as past and understanding, pour into our hearts.